You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. David Gran writes for The New Yorker and The New Republic, where he's also a contributing editor. His first book was The Lost City of Z, a tale of deadly obsession in the Amazon. His new book is The Devil and Sherlock Holmes, Tales of Murder, Madness, and Obsession. Thank you for joining me, David. Oh, thanks for having me here. David, this is such a wonderful book. And even though it looks like a collection of nonfiction essays that cover a variety of subjects that have some loose association on the surface, I think it's deeply tied at the center by something that we know you're interested in, which is obsession. Yes, I think that's true. I think all the characters uh, in these stories, and there's a dozen of them, um, are obsessed usually with some object. Uh, sometimes it's with uh, trying to figure out themselves. It's almost an internal obsession. And sometimes it's an external obsession, like trying to find the giant squid. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, one of the things that I, I really loved about this book was just the pleasures of your prose and your pacing. The, the way you write these stories, you, they're all nonfiction. They're all thoroughly researched and vetted yet they have the feel of really great short stories. And I'm wondering if, as you're writing these pieces, talk about researching any kind, these various subjects. We have the Sherlock Holmes uh, collector. We have a man accused of setting fire to his house. We have the man who had amnesia right after 9-11. There's a variety of characters in here. The way you shape these, they have real stories. So talk about storytelling in the nonfiction world. Yeah. I mean, what draws me to these pieces, each one of them, is that they are stories. Um, and they all have a, a certain magic and power of storytelling. And when I sit down to try to tell them, um, I very much want them to unfold as stories. And I think in terms of storytelling, I was a very bad, I, I started out writing uh, newspaper a copy and being a newspaper reporter and I was terrible at it because I could never get the inverted pyramid and get all the information in the second paragraph and and you kind of know you need to know exactly what's happening and these stories really unfold and very much what I want the reader to experience is what I experience which is that these stories are journeys and I often when I begin them have no idea where they will end um, and so there's the story, for example, about the world's greatest Sherlock Holmes scholar that you mentioned who found dead and garroted in very mysterious circumstances. Well, that began as just a tantalizing hint. I saw one line that basically said that. And I began to investigate this mystery, which was being investigated, as it turned out, by all these Sherlock Holmes fanatics around the world who had taken up this case um, and were looking into it and sleuthing through it. And where that story ended, where I began, I had no idea. So I want these stories to both unfold in the way uh, you'd be telling a story, but also as these journeys uh, to that, that where I begin uh, and where I end up. I really love the way that uh, one of the things that, that um, interests me 
is this, there's a lot of these stories have different, uh, I think, levels of reality. And I'm thinking, because you perceive that we live in different levels of realities. For example, the Sherlock Holmes story, there's the fictional Sherlock Holmes, the real people who like him, his real address in the real world, the people who believe his life was real. Uh, we, we have um, the, the chameleon who had all these different identities and, and, and lived all these different lives. We, we have um, the, the, the brand, the prison gang, with, with all these kind of realities inside and outside of prison, going back and forth. Talk about how your experience of researching these real events and bringing them into the prose world, you know, affects your visions of reality. Well, many of the stories, and often a subtext of them, which you're very perceptive, is about the search for truth or the elusiveness of truth. Uh, some of these characters are um, professional liars, as, as the chameleon told me. Uh, I'm a liar. That's what I do. I manipulate. I'm very good at it. Um, and there is a character, for example, who planted or allegedly planted clues to real murder in his postmodern novel. And what is real? What is truth? I mean, that story in itself is an exploration of kind of uh, is there a truth? Can you prove a truth? Um, and, and, and in my own research in these stories, um, I am pursuing the truth. And um, one of the themes of this collection is that I think we all want to be like Sherlock Holmes in many ways. We all want to be these kind of superhuman detectives with superhuman uh, powers of rationality and that we can make sense of the world. And of course we're not. We're much more like Watson. Uh, we are mortal. Uh, we are driven by emotions. And we can't always see the puzzle perfectly clearly. And so these stories are struggles as much as possible to make sense of those, uh, what is the truth, and to try to find the truth. And very much like many of the characters in these stories um, are trying to do the same. It, you know, one of the things about Sherlock Holmes that I think your piece points out about him, and I think this is true in general of these obsessive personalities, is the reason we like Sherlock Holmes is that he's a vacuum we can pour ourselves into and never, never fill up. Yeah, well, I think that's true, and I think, I also think he is the perfect superhero for, for adults. I mean, he is the perfect superhero because he can make sense of our worlds. He can make sense of our lives. All of us use the art of detection in some ways in our daily lives. We look for clues. We try to make sense of it, whether it be our relationships or whether it be a murder mystery, whatever it may be. Um, and Holmes is is the god of this. I mean, he can always make sense of everything. The rest of us, as um, the sister of the character who the real character in the Sherlock Holmes story that I wrote about, this great scholar was found garroted, said to me at the very end that one of the things we need to do that's different from these mystery novels is uh, to live without answers. In this life without answers, um, one of the things that the, the, the piece that follows Sherlock Holmes is, is a really fascinating story um, where in your prose and the way you write the story, you invert our perception of what happens in the story back and forth. It's like a, it's like our perception of the events is like an hourglass, just up mm -hmm. and down. He did it. He didn't do it. He didn't. Mm -hmm. He didn't do it. Talk about your experience uh, with the case of uh, Cameron Todd Willingham yeah. and the arson uh, investigation surrounding him. This is a story about uh, a man uh, from Texas, a young man, 
who was convicted of setting a fire um, that killed his children. He was convicted in 1992. Arson investigators had gone into his house and found what they believe were these 20 indicators, more than 20 indicators of arson, something called crazed glass, which is like a little spider web pattern in the glass that they said happened from rapid heating. If you put liquid accelerant, some type of gasoline or charcoal or fluid on the floor, it causes the heat to accelerate and it creates this fracture in the glass. They also found what they said was these low burn patterns. In other words, there was burning on the floor. And arson investigators for years said, always said, well, fire burns up, it doesn't burn down. So if you have low burn patterns, it means that somebody had poured some type of liquid accelerant on the floor, gasoline or whatnot, lit the fire. Once they found this, uh, he was the likely suspect. He was the only survivor. He had been in the house. Uh, he was indicted. He was convicted, and he was sentenced to die. It took the jury uh, barely an hour to reach this conclusion, and um, he was eventually executed in 2004. And one of the things um, that— Did you ever meet him? No, I didn't. Uh, what I was able to do is obtain all his letters and prison diaries uh, and able to get a sense of his life. And what it turns out is that for years, you know, we think again of these arson investigators as these Sherlockian characters, these kind of infallible characters who come in and see all these burn patterns and make sense of him. It turned out that for years the stuff was just based on wives' tales and that they, these theories had never been scientifically tested. And these 20 so-called indicators of arson um, have since been looked at by all the leading scientists, the leading uh, fire scientists, and they've all said it's bunk, that this guy was executed based on junk science, and that there is no scientific validity to the conclusion um, that this man set the fire. And so this is, again, a story about perceptions, and sometimes that desire to want to make sense of the world, uh, that human desire to kind of find a clear answer, can really lead astray. And in this case, I don't think anybody was trying to do anything malignant. Um, they all thought they were acting in good faith, but their fallibility led to a p potentially um, devastating outcome where we have very, very strong evidence that an innocent person uh, was executed. And what we certainly have is that a man was executed uh, based on evidence that was, was junk. Now, one of the things, it, it interests me, um, <clears throat> in terms uh, of you know your involvement in these stories, and I think one of the things you do really well is to s put yourselves in and out of the stories. Some of them you're more in, and some of them more you're, you're more out. Talk about deciding your level of involvement in the story in a pro in, in the actual story part. Mm -hmm. um, usually, um, I put myself in these stories um, where I think. I can be a vehicle to help illuminate it or put the reader in a place to be able to see things that I'm seeing and experience then. Um, I don't want the stories to be about myself at all. I want the stories to really be old-fashioned in that sense. I really want the stories to be about the subjects I am covering. But um, if, for example, I'm telling a story about you know, one of the stories in this collection is about um, these water tunnels underneath New York City, and you go a thousand feet down, and, and they're about as deep as the Chrysler Building is high, and it's this whole invisible empire where, for generations, these sandhogs, these tunnel diggers, have been building these enormous, elaborate water tunnels that rival the Brooklyn Bridge and the Panama Canal, but most people have never seen them. <laughs> and so, in that case, um, my going down and describing what I see almost as an ordinary person, not as a sandhog, um, 
allows the reader in and to experience it, the sounds, the touches, and the sights through an ordinary character, not just the tunnel diggers who live down there. And, and the way they experience it will be different. I'll be narrating it from their point of view. But I let the reader experience it almost that first time, that first sense of discovery. And so um, those are the times where I feel like my presence in the story is uh, helping the reader to understand what the story is about. You know, that story was really interesting because I thought, for me, it seemed a little bit different from the other stories in that while the Sandhogs were obviously obsessive in that they had to get down there, and, and that's a, a clearly unpleasant place to work, what was interesting to me was the, that story as a vision of the city in which the this whole underground empire is almost like the, the unconscious of New York City. Yeah. You almost, it, you turn New York City into a character yeah. that's obsessed with yeah. itself. <laughs> and, 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 and that is, um, the, to me, uh, the tantalizing thing is just that, that, that there really is this invisible empire that underneath New York City is a world as complex and as elaborate and as kind of engineeringly brilliant as the city above. And in fact, the city above, its very vitality, its very life depends on this city below uh, because all of New York gets its water uh, through these tunnels. And in fact, one of the things the story illuminates is that there is this race to build the third water tunnel because the two older water tunnels are leaking badly and hemorrhaging, and they can't shut them down to repair them because of uh, uh, this valve. If they shut the valve, they're afraid if they turned off one of the tunnels, they wouldn't be able to turn it back on. So these tunnels have never been repaired. And so there's been this race that started in 1969 to build this third water tunnel that may not be completed until into for at least another decade and um, before these old tunnels might collapse. And so I think what, you, what you're saying is, yes, there is that New York's life is kind of entrenched and dependent upon this other world that we don't know about, that, that I didn't know about when I started the story. I mean, you know, until I heard about it. I mean, you know, I go to work every day in Times Square, and I had no idea. It's interesting, too. I think one of the things you do well is to integrate history into your stories. It's, I mean, who knew how many people died of cholera in New York? Right. I mean, that's an amazing thing. I mean, when, when, when people started to tell me that if these old water tunnels collapse, you would have a calamity, an unprecedented calamity that would make 9-11 uh, look like nothing in terms of, of its impact and, and the threat to human life. And I thought, well, how could you imagine that? How would you imagine that happened? Well, it turned out that as I did research that New York had actually once experienced a world with huge water shortages. And you only had to go back, you know, 150 years to find a city that was desperate for water. Uh, it didn't have clean water. Disease was rampant. They didn't have water to put out fires, so you had the great fire that helped burn down a huge swath of New York. And so um, one of the, the things is that history really helped illuminate the present. And um, for me, with many of these stories, um, it, the history fascinates me. It puts these characters in context. There's almost always a backstory. It, it, it interests me too. Gosh, there's some such. Uh, one of the things you do very well is create. Uh, I guess what in a fiction piece of fiction would be uh, set pieces, and there's a, a great set piece in there where you just talk about um, how they have to have scuba divers. Um, practice for weeks on end to, to go down underneath the city to even look at this valve. That's really incredible. It is incredible. There's this one section which is leaking badly, 
and um, they were trying to figure out how could they repair it and could they repair this one leak. And because the pressure was so intense, they had to put these guys in these tanks um, and let them live in these tanks for days on end before they would send them down. Um, and it was just astonishing, and it was basically just trying to, you know, pretty much like replace a screw. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I thought was um, fascinating, I, I'm a guy who loves cryptozoology, which is the search for hidden <laughs> hidden critters. And nothing thrills me more than hearing uh, Liam Neeson say, release the Kraken. <laughs> <laughs> Now, we, the Kraken doesn't look quite as cool as it does in the movie, but we do have the giant squid. Yeah. And I've been reading about this for years and years and years. Richard Ellis's book, yes. Monsters of the Sea, a wonderful book. You bring a completely new perspective to the search for the giant squid. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the thing about this is just kind of amazing. I mean, with cryptozoology, sometimes there's a question of are they real or not. And, and here is a case where a creature that is seen more of myth on um, this kind of giant squid with eyes the size of a human head tentacles that have been measured as long as 60 feet and are certainly as long as 30 feet um, but it's real and and yet how could this giant creature you know one of the largest animals of the sea um, never have been seen alive or at least documented by a scientist and so it, it existed in this kind of special space where they knew it existed because these dead creatures have been floated up on shore or have been found in fishing nets floating dead um, but no one had documented a live one and so it existed in this world of kind of semi-myth and semi-real and when I first heard about this I hadn't known anything about it when I heard about it I thought huh that's so interesting but how would you ever tell that story because well, if you can't find the giant squid, you can't really, you know, how are you going to document it? And then I discovered there are these giant squid hunters, these Ahabian-like characters who really fit the theme of my book. If there ever was an Ahab, these guys are Ahab. And it turned out there was a really great Ahab who lived down in New Zealand <laughs> named Steve O'Shea. He was a wonderful scientist, a marine biologist who had devoted his life uh, to trying to capture a giant live squid. And, but he, he has a rather different approach, doesn't he? Ta ta it, tell us a little bit about his approach. Yeah, he had a radical new approach. I mean, people had tried everything. I mean, they had tried um, putting cameras on wheels. I mean, the only one of the evidence we know of, of these giant squid is that they battle with, with, with wheels. And, that, um, and they know that because they can see across the front of the whale's head uh, the tentacle marks, the burn, the slashing uh, where these battles happen uh, uh, under the sea. Um, so people had tried to put critter cams on whales to see if they could capture footage of it. They'd done everything. They'd gone down in cages underwater. Um, O'Shea came up with this radical idea, which is no one for years has been able to capture one of these things. And his idea was, why don't I try to capture a baby and try to grow it in captivity? And the theory had a certain kind of brilliance to it, which is that, like many creatures, um, many eggs are spawned. Many more eggs are spawned than actually survive. And so for a brief period, there will be many little baby giant squid. Many of them will be eaten and not survive. He figured, if I can get into spawning territories, they'll be easier to catch. They won't be as fast. They won't be as deep. Um, and then I need to grow it in captivity. Uh, and so he was trying to do this, and I went out with him uh, to try to do this. Now, of course, uh, it turned out that spawning season for giant squid and squid is only during a certain period. 
and it so happened there was a cyclone during this very period and O'Shea rather than be deterred decided we were going to go out anyways and I figured I got all the way to New Zealand at this point I might as well go with him uh, it turned out O'Shea, uh, like many academics, doesn't have a lot of funding, so we went out in a little skiff. <laughs> <laughs> I was expecting some great research vessel, and uh, it was only me and his, his one of his graduate research assistants who really uh, wasn't so used to being at sea, and uh, the three of us went out uh, in the cyclone uh, to try to capture our giant squid. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is a habit of yours. You... You know, you're you're a guy who lives in New York, and, and, but you get yourself into some sticky situations, <laughs> a, a lot of danger. Uh, do you, uh, when you're approaching these situations, I'm thinking of this and, and some of the truly frightening people you've managed to be in the presence of. Um, do you anticipate the danger? Say, this looks like it might be dangerous, um, but I'm gonna go anyway. Or do you kind of like just? say, oh, I want to go there, and then realize, oh, wow, over there is this guy who's maybe killed a bunch of people, ordered some deaths, or... Yeah, uh, probably usually more the latter, um, where I get interested in a story, and I begin to pursue it, and I think the one echo I have with some of these characters is I think I kind of get a little bit consumed with the story, and pursuing it and often end up in situations I would never conceive of. And in fact, had I thought about beforehand, because I am, if I actually don't, I probably wouldn't do it. Um, but I kind of end up in the pursuit and the pursuit ends me up in places. There are a few occasions, like for example, the story about the Aryan Brotherhood, mm -hmm. which has had a long uh, presence in a lot of California prisons, mm -hmm. actually really originated and, and was spawned out of San Quentin. Uh, and it's very, uh, powerful organization in the in the California state and federal prison system um, where I did have some awareness beforehand I mean you'd have to be oblivious not to and um, was concerned hmm. um, you know one of the I think the themes of this book is kind of this idea of um, it's about identity and, and what exactly it is to, to be human. And I think that's one of the really interesting aspects of, of the way you explore these these characters. Uh, you know, for example, the, 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 the chameleon, I think, is a, is a really fascinating uh, character. So, and talk about, as you encounter these people, what's your sense of what it is to be human, how that's changed by virtue of the stories you've pursued? A lot of these uh, characters um, will surprise me in many ways. And um, I think they do. They give me glimpses. Um, and I say glimpses, sometimes more, of the human condition. And it is what draws me to them. And, and, and to their situations. Um, often they are about people trying to make sense of the world, um, like the fireman from 9-11 who mm. suffered amnesia, mm -hmm. who is kind of struggling and questing um, to find out what happened in that day. It's really haunted by guilt that he alone uh, was the only member of his, from his house, his firehouse. A dozen men went down, he was the only one to survive. And he's really trying to piece together that, that day and uh, in the case of the chameleon, uh, this con man, this kind of serial con man imposter who um, is 
came from this troubled background and has kind of adopted this method of survival that's kind of very bizarre on the on the outside. Um, but you know, as he tries to explain it, it is illuminating. Um, and and and, and I, some of these characters get into situations that are surprising. So, for example, the con man or the imposter, the chameleon is a person who you're very uneasy with uh, in some ways when you're telling the story because here he is, he invents these characters, he always pretends to be a child. Now there's no evidence that he steals from people, he, that he, there's no evidence that he's a pedophile, he simply seems to do it for emotional profit where he pretends to be a child and get taken into orphanages or homes. At a certain point, uh, he ends up uh, stealing somebody's identity because the law is on to him uh, and when he's in Spain, he's a Frenchman. And he ends up stealing the identity of a boy from Texas, a guy named Nicholas Barkley. And the family comes over, or the, the sister comes over, and brings him back, and he lives with the family. And they say they have discovered their missing child and, um, or brother. And um, it's kind of amazing. And you think, well, this guy's kind of, it's just so strange. And you think, well, maybe the family uh, just wants to believe so badly. Um, but at a certain point in that story, like in many of these stories, what you think is true or the reality you think is true begins to subvert itself. And there comes a point where this great con man, this great imposter who has always manipulated people, suddenly wonders if he is the one who is being conned. And is it possible um, that the family, how could the family really believe that this Frenchman who has an accent and different colored eyes could really be this mis missing Texan boy? And um, he starts to kind of conduct his own investigation to find out what really happened to the boy. And what he discovers is quite shocking and unsettling. Talk about um, sitting in the room with, with some of these people. Did, did you, you talked to, to Darius uh, Januski, didn't you? Yes, a, yes. A, who, who no, not, not to Darius, but uh, to who, cause uh, Bala. He, to Bala, Christian yeah. Bala, yes, mm. I did. Uh, Christian Bala was a character who, who from the Polish story called True Crime, um, who is a kind of celebrated intellectual in Poland, wrote this very uh, disturbing and unsettling novel called Amok, as it translates into English, and that truly tried to kind of push the boundaries of every tradition. It was very to shatter kind of every bourgeois uh, tradition, and it was very sexually um, uh, unsettling and violent, and was also a postmodern novel where it tried to kind of make you not sure what is real and what is not and is there truth and uh, this sense of kind of mythocreation and is the novel real or isn't it real well it turned out that um, uh, there was a cold murder case and a working-class Polish detective um, began to investigate it and a clue led him to Bala and he began to read this book and as he was reading this novel this kind of hard-nosed detective uh, started to believe that there were clues uh, to this actual murder, to solving this cold case. And so this great empiricist suddenly has to become a postmodernist to try to solve the case, <laughs> and, um, and eventually does. And, 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 and Christian Bala um, is eventually arrested and convicted, and I eventually did meet with him in a Polish prison. And, uh, you know, Bala outwardly looked about as normal. He looked like a, ki a kid who, uh, he was pretty young. He looked like he was somebody, he looked almost American. Uh, looked, uh, in terms of he was wearing an American shirt, he had lived here in the States for a little bit. He looked like someone who was studying abroad. He had his little intellectual glasses on and, and uh, was very dashing. Um, and yet, 
I had this inf other information that was very unsettling. So that's one of those situations where you're meeting with someone, and by that time I had done a lot of investigation, and I knew a lot of the evidence in the case. And so we were having this conversation with somebody, but you do know a lot, and it's a very unsettling experience. I love the way in this book there you play with so many different kinds of reality and and, and the, that the story is there's always another layer to these onion-like stories and I think that's an interesting perception just to, uh, of what it, again what it is to be human that that uh, and you say this in the uh, at the end of the very first uh, story there there are no final answers are there no no and I think um, we all want the answers and we all come up with the answers in certain ways and sometimes we do a pretty good job find getting pretty close finding the answers um, but one of the things I've learned from researching these stories and in a way I want to write the perfect story in the sense I want to know everything I want to know everything about the subject I cover um, each one of these stories are mysteries to me and and yet just like the subjects you know I can only get so far and I think all of us uh, in many ways like I said earlier, we all want to be Sherlock Holmes, and yet we all are mortal, and these are not fairy tales. And to some extent, we have to live without answers. One of the things I think that's interesting uh, through these stories is that we now have a lot of, in, recently in the last 20 to 30 years, we've developed a lot of new technology that really allows us to apply ourselves to these kind of problems in, in a way that may, that seems if you were Sherlock Holmes, you'd just love the whole CSI. You would just think this is the bee's knees. It's the mm -hmm. best thing in the world. But the only problem is, is that I, I think, and that's what I like about these stories, is that we're the problem. Mm -hmm. And we can't solve that problem. No. And I mean, I think in the, in the Willingham story about the man who was executed, we see that most clearly. And, and, and um, our belief in CSI in a way. Our belief um, is in some ways often misplaced. I mean, we have such faith uh, in these solutions that um, it can really lead us astray. And so we kind of believe now that science can kind of come in and solve everything uh, when it often can't. Um, and that certainly happened uh, in the Willingham case. I, I, whenever I think of see these CSI reconstructions of bones, I remember that uh, in the Crystal Garden of uh, London, when they first put together the um, iguanodon, they put its thumb bone on its nose to give it a little, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a little horn. And yeah. I just wait for them to put a thumb on somebody's nose and say, "He was murdered death by thumb." <laughs> yeah, and 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 the thing about the thing about um, the, for example, our belief in CSI is so powerful and are, are wanting it to be so perfect. And so, for example, something like the Willingham case, once the arson investigators came in under the halo of science and found what they believe are all these clues and evidence, the whole case suddenly takes on a different tenor. And it gets to what you were saying is that we are all human. And so as humans start to interact with this evidence, um, other problems begin to emerge. So, for example, the eyewitness testimony in that case the people who had initially seen Willingham outside his house and the way he behaved during the fire outside his house began to change. Mm -hmm. um, as once the witnesses were aware or, or had some knowledge that, oh, this guy probably did it, they began to re-recollect 
what had happened on the day of the fire very differently. And you could see changes in their statements. So it went from, you know, he was hysterical, uh, trying to get into his house. He was hysterical about his kids, too. He was too hysterical, and he was only putting on a show. Um, and Or he was only hysterical once the authorities got there. And so you see these changes. And so how we also interact with this evidence and interpret it changes. And so the fact that you what you can eliminate from this process is that we are humans dealing with the evidence, interpreting the evidence, and trying to make sense of the evidence. Well, and two, it, it, it suggests the importance of storytelling in that any story is subject to instant revision in memory. Yes, yeah, very much so. And I mean, that was an amazing thing, which I didn't really know about, although you, I, you learn about this as a reporter, where you interview people, and you always kind of need to test um, what they're saying and find uh, um, corroboration. And one of the things that Sherlock Holmes says is you need to essentially probe all the versions of the truth and, until the one that remains is the most likely one. And in effect, that's what you try to do in all these stories. When you're getting all these different stories and versions of the truth, you're testing them, verifying them, and the ones that remain are the ones that are the most solid, that provide the foundation. You know, one thing that about Sherlock Holmes is that you suggest, and I totally agree, that he's the first superhero but also he was an early super specialist. Mm -hmm. And I think that as we become more and more civilized, people have been able to achieve these highly, you know, really specialized kind of lives that really allow you to obsess and zero in on one thing that um, you can do. And I love the story of the guy that stealing time, the base steal. Yeah. <laughs> so it's so fun. Yes. I mean, Ricky Henderson and, and, you know, Ricky Henderson is, it's a funny character in this, in this, uh, collection because, um, on outwardly it would seem like it doesn't belong. I mean, here is this kind of aging baseball star, Ricky Henderson. When I went to meet with him, he was playing in the Golden Baseball League uh, here in California, which wasn't even a minor league team. Uh, he was 46, I believe, at the time, and he was desperate to get back to the majors. Nobody would take him. Here was the greatest leadoff hitter in the history of the game, greatest baseball stealer, and he was willing to play for a pittance in these stadiums where there was about 10 people who come out to see him play, determined to get back. And yet, he was in many ways obsessed. Um, he was obsessed with getting back. He was obsessed with almost trying to maintain his um, immortality in some ways, his youth. And I found himself in this pr predicament where his whole life had become a puzzle. And at one point he said to me, he said, you know, Ricky, he always spoke in the third person. And he said, Ricky's still trying to, you know, figure out all the pieces of the puzzle. And, and so it does fit. Um, and here's a man both who's deeply obsessed and also trying to use the art of detection and yet not quite able to make sense of it all. And he has his wife and his kids saying, Ricky, please just come home now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, the thing you also talk about, Sherlock Holmes, um, and I think what's so interesting about what you say and, and, and Sherlock Holmes too, is that for all his focus on the science and the forensics and hard reality and little gritty clues, there's just something about him that's mystic. Yeah. I mean, he he see he is does have that superhero edge, but there's something that that's kind of beyond reality. And we always expect Sherlock Holmes to be one step away. I'm 
to you know to find if anybody's going to find a real ghost, the real Bigfoot, <laughs> the real Loch Ness monster, it's going to be Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, well, there. I mean, we all fall into, um, and I think T. S. Eliot said this: we all fall into habit when we talk about Sherlock Holmes as if he were real, <laughs> and um, he has become a character that we've gotten used to living with and kind of being part of our lives, and. Um, and again, I think the appeal is this seduction of reason in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also is just a wonderful literary character, mm-hmm. and as are many of these characters in this book. And and some of these characters create characters um, to kind of help them live, or they <laughs> they invent characters about themselves. <laughs> and for some of them, uh, certainly in the first story, uh, Sherlock Holmes, the guy who's obsessed with Sherlock Holmes, this great scholar, and Conan Doyle, um, like many of these Sherlock Holmes obsesses. You know, Sherlock Holmes has become almost a real character for them who kind of aids them in their lives in some strange way. Well, I, I think, too, that what this kind of, what your book leads us to is this um, perception that there's so much to be found in the details of lives. And yet when you add it all up, you there are no answers. There's something mystic beyond yes. what we can ever get to. Yes, very much so. They're very much so. And I think w- one of the reasons I do this and one of the things um, I think that appeal to us is stories. We Stories have been around forever. And they are our way of making sense of the world as best we can. And it's why we tell stories. It's why Sherlock Holmes is a character and we reread those stories over and over again. Uh, and they make movies again and again. These stories, whether they be about ourselves or these stories that I tell, are the way that we make sense of the world as best we can. Um, And it's how we kind of live without answers in a way, Um, because it's not finite. But we have these stories, and they have a certain magic. It's why we tell them. It's why we read them. Um, And I really feel, um, you know, for me, that is the appeal of these stories. Now... (coughs) Your, your previous book, the, the Lost City of Z, dealt in a lot of this t- same territory. Um, and I wanted to, to follow up and find out, uh, last I heard, somebody was going to make a movie about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, where is that? Uh, it's still moving along, and uh, the, the, the book is being developed by Brad Pitt and his production company. And Brad Pitt is supposed to play uh, Colonel Fawcett. Percy Harrison Fawcett, who disappeared in the Amazon looking for this ancient civilization, this place he called rather cryptically the City of Z. And um, it's being developed, and there's a script that has been developed, which is really wonderful. And uh, James Gray is the director and uh, screenwriter. So it's moving along, and I'm hoping it'll be sooner rather than later. <laughs> well, it's such a, a wonderful story, and I think we'll you know, bring out you know, some of your your. Uh, visions of this kind of the way we kind of have to parse the world and and I think I guess that's again that brings us back to what this book I think is you know really about in that it's uh, this book is a discovery uh, of you know who we are and one of the things you do to discover who we are is each of these um, stories is we look at them as you know we read them as kind of nonfiction and such. But I think one of the things you're really incredibly good at is bringing fictional techniques and storytelling techniques to nonfiction. So talk about creating characters. Yeah, I mean, um, 
early in my writing life, I probably had aspirations of becoming a, a novelist. And I always struggled uh, to imagine and get inside the characters' heads and be able to come up with the plot lines. And then there came a point when I went into nonfiction and I did it for a while and suddenly I probably should have realized it sooner that you can really apply these fiction techniques but to the truth. Um, these stories are all deeply reported and all based very much on fact. And yet um, the storytelling techniques of building stories around characters, plumbing deeply into the character, exploring the characters, um, and showing, not telling. Um, the worst thing I want to do as a reporter is to, to sit down with a subject and just interview him. What I want to do is follow a character through his life and document it. And sh so he becomes less conscious of the process. I'm able to see him in his world, whether it be the squid hunter or the Sherlock Holmes sluice or this detective investigating the murder, this postmodern novel murder, uh, and watch them as they go about their lives so that I can show them and reveal them um, using the techniques that you would have with fiction, um, and yet you've gathered the information. And the other half of this, too, is not just that you create great characters, but you're really great at the storytelling aspect, um, the plot arc. So, And that must be really challenging because with the plot arc of these things, you are confined to real events. Yes, and, and, and it's true. And, and, and you know, one of the things in nonfiction that pr presents great challenges. So, for example, um, on the Squid Hunter story, when I begin these stories, I don't know where they will end. Um, I really don't. I mean, almost, I don't know what I, exactly I will find, and I don't know exactly what will happen. And so, for example, on the squid hunter story, I went to, to New Zealand. I traveled with this squid hunter, and I just prayed we captured the giant squid. We captured this baby squid, and I would watch him grow it in captivity, and I thought that's what the story should be. That was the construct. I built in my head. Just as these characters build constructs, that was my construct. That was the right story I had imagined. Now, I get out there on with them on the boat. We've been out there for days. We've been working at night. Apparently, you can only capture giant squid at night for some reason. So from, from, from you know, 10 p.m. until 5 a.m., we'd just be hauling with these nets trying to capture the squid. And there came a moment where we thought we had captured um, the baby giant squid. And we were transferring it into a special container that he had built. Uh, to store it and it was very rocky we hadn't slept for days and it was there and as we were putting it into the other container suddenly it disappeared as if it was just an illusion and I of course thought in that moment I just said my story is ruined I said you know what am I going to do because I had built this construct I had spent this money I had come all the way to New Zealand what am I going to tell my editors you know we we didn't get it and it just got away and 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 then what you were saying, where you kind of come back and you're dealing with reality. So I got back, and when I started to write the story and think about that moment, I thought that was exactly what should have happened. That was the truth, that here was this great Ahab character who um, had spent his whole life trying to capture this creature, had it, and it slipped away. And that kind of moment of, of, of pathos and that moment of elusiveness. And I thought, that's the truth. And that was the way the story was supposed to be. It wasn't supposed to be the way I had constructed it in, in my mind. But you don't often know. And you have to deal with the truth and make sense of the truth and process it 
uh, to tell the story. So, um, but I think that's a, a kind of an example of what you think will happen doesn't happen. And yet I think in terms of the story is really what makes it true. And had I done, let's say it was fiction and I had constructed and wrote that, in, it would have felt like a fairy tale and false. I've been speaking with David Gran. His new book is The Devil and Sherlock Holmes, Tales of Murder, Madness, and Obsession. Thank you for speaking with me, David. Oh, thank you so much for having me on the show. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.